0: What did you remember of your earliest experience with sex and sexuality? How many of us can admit that we were very much given ample information and support to learn and experiment tackling this big scary monster? Or were you very much on your own, bravely and carefully treading the unknown?
1: Even in schools, sex education centres about abstinence and the jarring consequences of unprotected sex, most notably teenage pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. Some Singaporean students have recounted the sex ed programs taught in schools as very artificial, boring, overly enthusiastic and more comical than serious. It's also been said that we tend to learn about sex from two
0: very extreme areas pornography or medical resources.
1: As absurd as it sounds, what we want to know is how is it really experienced by the everyday person?
0: Sexuality may not be openly discussed in Singapore, but we do have our very own sexologist, Dr Martha Lee, who has been an advocate for positive sexuality since 2009. Ever dedicated to helping clients with issues of sexuality, We are very happy that she has given Offbeat Perspectives the chance to interview her. The topic of sexuality is often sexualized and deemed as dirty or taboo in Singapore. Yet, you are able to comfortably help clients and discuss it in a positive, mature and factual manner. You could start off with briefly sharing with us how you got into this line of work.
1: I, I started working after I finished my diploma in mass communications, doing PR, marketing, advertising, and it was very unfulfilling for me, feeling that I was just helping companies to be richer and more successful. And uh, I was at this crossroads of my life where I really asked myself, what do I really want to do with my life that I can make money, but something that is rewarding and helping people. I did volunteer counseling. I started my own nonprofit. And when the nonprofit closed down, I I at that time I was doing my master's in public policy. So I realized I don't want to do nonprofit work anymore, but I actually really wanted to start my own practice in counseling people. I realized I was good in counseling. So I decided to combine my interest in human sexuality with my desire to start my practice, my desire to run my own thing. And so I went and got my doctorate in human sexuality. Yeah, so 11 years ago, came back, started my practice. Uh, I think the reason why I'm able to talk about sex in a factual, educational, hopefully fun way is Mm -hmm. the training that I had really helped to desensitize me so we have this process of desensitization where you you watch videos, you talk about it, and uh, these videos can be explicit, can be non explicit. But we spend a lot of time immersed in the world of sexuality. And after a while, we are able to talk about sex in a straight face without blushing, without making stupid faces. Because as counselors, we do have to be very sensitive that our clients are coming to us with a lot of shame and discomfort. So any kind of adverse negative reaction that may contain judgment will really wound them. So the training that I had really helped me a lot to have that confidence. Everything else you can pick up. You can read book. You can continue to go for training. But I feel the, the training that I got in in San Francisco uh, through my sex school really helped me with this desensitization process. And in fact, the desensitization process that my school invented in 1976 uh, actually still continues to this day. It is actually one of the requirements to go through a desensitization training program for all sex therapists, counselors, and sex educators around the world. Hmm.
0: How would you personally define positive sexuality in your own terms?
1: Yeah, so there's this term in the world of sexuality called sex positive. And sex positive, contrary to I think some beliefs, is that sex positive doesn't mean you go around having sex with lots of people. Uh, It means that you have a very positive attitude towards sex and you don't have any difficulties expressing your sexuality if you choose to. And you also do not impose your sexual beliefs and attitudes and expressions onto other people. It's very important that being sex, sex positive uh, is your attitude towards your own uh, sex, sexual relationship with yourself. But it's not about making other people's choices right or wrong.
0: Then how do you find the
1: attitudes towards sex for Singaporeans in general? It's just like, you know, how do you find the sex attitude of Asians or how do you find the sex attitude of people at large? I think we are all individuals. Uh, however, I think because of the lack of sexuality education for most of my clients, around my age <laughs> 40s or 30s, I think people in their 20s, they are more lucky. They have had some sex education in school growing up. Whereas people who are older, even, as, even 10 years younger than me, they didn't actually have any sex education growing up. So that will affect their exposure and uh, will influence their sex attitude and their ease with their sexuality. So this will in turn affect their ability and ease and comfort to articulate sexuality in general. Um, And this will of course also inhibit their expression for Singaporeans' depending on where they come from and their educational level, they can be very different. So it's very difficult to generalize, but I would say most of the people who choose to come and see me, they are the ones who are the most inhibited and they are the ones who need the most support when it comes to sexuality. I have many clients who don't masturbate, don't know how to masturbate, never had an orgasm, don't know how to have sex, cannot have sex, have painful sex, uh, have low sex drive. So I work with the the people who choose to come in and see me. Of course, it's a self-selecting group. And, of course, I see the, the consequences of not having a sexually more open kind of a society. How do you think
0: our school sex education can be taught in Singapore to improve it, while keeping in mind that it has to be aligned to the conservative values of some
1: Singaporeans? Yeah, the very conservative people are sometimes probably the most vocal, and I understand the position the government is at. It's very difficult to develop a nationwide sexuality education program that everybody is comfortable with. And so they are toggling this very fine line. Of course, I wish Singapore had more of a comprehensive uh, sexuality education versus what they put on their website, which is we choose to have a more abstinence-based kind of a program. And they have been very secretive about how much information about this program exactly are they teaching. So I don't think uh, organizations will have access to what exactly are they teaching. But I'm very happy that at least some sexuality education is there. I think the reaction of the conservative people uh, of Singapore is that uh, they actually think uh, sexuality education is encouraging or promoting sex but actually sexuality is a much broader term and it includes the ability to talk about our rights and stand up for ourselves and communicate and to love our bodies and to be able to uh, understand when a relationship is toxic so these are the many many different aspects of our sexuality that people think sex at is just sex which is actually a very limited way of thinking about it. Uh, when it is not comprehensive, I think there will be people who will fall through the gaps. Uh, already there are people who will stop their education at primary school. There will be people who will stop their education at secondary school. And once they leave school, this this knowledge that they've acquired in school may be the only chance to reach them. And so we miss them and they they will be just the next person on the street who doesn't know anything about standing up for themselves in their relationships. And when they are not getting any information whatsoever in schools or at home or in their culture or religion, um, it can be very uh, challenging uh, down the road. So, uh, Singapore is pretty like, proud and uh, out about its you know, Asian values. So when it comes to ideas about uh, sexuality and gender, uh, they tend to be seen as Western liberal values. So as what, what would be your thoughts and your views on that? Okay, I was very surprised when I started my practice that I had actually many, 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 many clients who choose to remain virgins until marriage because of their Asian values, not even because of religion, because we are Asians. So what does Asian values really mean? And I don't see anything wrong with respecting people's values. However, uh, you know, we're talking about Asian values. It's it's very loose, loose. It's a very loose term. Because there are people who are more educated, who choose to rebel against their Asian roots or their Asian values. And then there are people who choose to listen to their Asian roots and Asian values. So I feel that regardless of whatever they choose to behave based on their values, to let go of those values. I think it's uh, very much their choice. And um, being young young people, uh, you have to do what you need to do to figure out what works for you. And uh, sometimes these are called mistakes. Uh, but I actually just see this as part of the human uh, journey of Figuring out for ourselves who we are, what we want, what we want to stand for uh, and and make sense of what these Asian values mean. It's very, very diverse, you see. It's really not a single type. And um, so I've had to really uh, see people coming into uh, me as individuals because it really doesn't mean anything anymore. (laughs) Like, oh, okay, you're Indian. So an Indian from Singapore and an Indian from Malaysia and an Indian from US and an Indian from India are all very different Indians. And even an Indian from India will be very different depending on their educational level and dependent on the choices that they make. So you cannot just say there's a type of Asian and Asian values, like it's so loose. I try to get certain hints from what they speak and where they come from, their accent and their exposure to the world, it does influence them in terms of how, how open that they will be with their sexuality and how important they see the role of sex uh, in their relationships. But even then, it's still a matter of, okay, let's just forget everything that I think I know and let's just work with the individual in front of me.
0: Uh, of course, you are talking about sex, right? Wanted to ask what are the ingredients needed for sexual compatibility and sexual chemistry. I'm curious to know because sexual pleasure can be derived or absent from various sexual relationships like casual hookups, relationship sex, or even married couples who were virgins beforehand.
1: Yes. Okay, so I already stuck at your first sentence already because like sexual compatibility and uh, can mean so many different things. It can mean, oh, you, you, you fit nicely into my body. If you are talking about penis, vaginal penetration, uh, sexual compatibility can mean like we, we like the same things sexually. Sexual compatibility can mean we have the same sex drives. <laughs> so it really means different things to different people. The next one is what? Uh, sorry, sexual compatibility, sexual... Sexual chemistry, I think a lot of times is learned. If you know how to tease, if you know how to play with uh, your hands, touch, you can generate sexual chemistry. Some people can be very good at flirting and teasing, but it doesn't necessarily mean the chemistry translates to Sexual execution. <laughs> Some people have great chemistry, but the sex just, the, the sex was not good. So <laughs> there's so many things uh, involved. Okay, so ne- next, next part, part two of your question. Your question was
0: So, what is the difference between sexual chemistry and love and sexual chemistry without love?
1: Yeah, I just want to say, like, when it talks about sex and love, a lot of people, myself including, uh, I think were were, were felt, fell into the trap of the whole Hollywood romance and happily ever after. And I didn't even know this, but I was caught up in this passionate uh, relationships equals to hot, fiery, meant to be happily ever after. So I don't think we appreciate the man- mundane and the stable kind of relationships where it doesn't seem like there's much fire. So fire and and passion and chemistry can actually translate to a lot of torture, a lot of pain, a lot of drama. And this addiction to fire, passion, uh, I think is something that is overrated if you really want to have a long-term successful relationship. So when I talk about compatibility, we, we talk about sexual compatibility, but actually compatibility in a long-term relationship, what really helps a long-term relationship to go the mile is really their values in, and vision of life. They have a, a, a totally different vision, like one wants to travel the world and one wants to uh, buy a house. Some of these things can be deal-breakers. Another deal breaker is whether somebody wants to have a child. So these are this, when we talk about love, uh, uh, it, a lot of cases, actually love is a choice. I I have my parents, I have my friends, but whether I want to be loving towards them is my choice. <laughs> Time, money, energy, <laughs> uh, the, my, my nature, whether I, I was brought up to be a loving person. And I feel a lot of people, they put so much attention on this sexual chemistry and passion that it's like, oh, there's no passion anymore. I guess we're not meant to be. The passion didn't last. Passion is also something that can be cultivated. But when it's wildfire, out of control, passion, that leads to a lot of toxic behavior and drama because of what we're used to in Hollywood like, or, or, or Chinese or Korean drama. I think we we think that that is the right thing. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the media actually really screws us up for what is going to be a successful long-term relationship. Because a lot of people actually think of a life well-lived is a life that is full of ups and downs and drama. So there are people who actually create drama in their relationships because they just want something that makes them feel alive. And there are people who uh, have affairs because... Uh, they are sick of the mundane. So I think we don't, we don't really appreciate the sea <laughs> liu which means uh, still waters round deep. But
0: for like affairs, it could also be, be because of internal relationship issues.
1: Yes. Uh, there are people who escape from their problems of the relationship by having affairs. Uh, but actually there are also a lot of statistics that show a lot of people who have affairs don't want to leave their partners are actually happy. Uh, so I have I have a few theories about about it. One is FOMO, fear of missing out. One is self-entitlement. I deserve it. One is avoidance. They just want to run away from things when things get tough. In um, a lot of Asians, we don't have practice in communicating and speaking our truth in being assertive. Instead, we only know how to be aggressive or passive-aggressive. So learning how to be assertive was also something that I needed to learn.
0: Then uh, I also wanted to ask about female pleasure. So the female clitoris alone has 8,000 nerve endings, which is double that of the penis. Having said that, Female pleasure is often neglected due to gender expectations and, and and norms. So, what would you like to enlighten females on the act of sex, masturbation and female over sex?
1: Okay, so in, in the last few years, there is this term that has surfaced called the orgasm gap, which is, today I just came across this literature actually, 83% of uh, people with penises, men, they will always have an orgasm, 83% of the time they will have orgasm. And 68% of the time, or 63% of the time, uh, women will have orgasms. So it's significantly less. However, I think uh, sex educators, uh, sex advocates, they make it into an issue. And I understand there is inequality, and this is a topic that needs to be discussed. And it, it does feel unfair. However, when you boil it down to individuals, actually, a lot of people don't care. <laughs> they don't care because they already have difficulties receiving. A lot of women are givers. So it's like, are you happy? Can I So if you already have that attitude, then your partner will also go, okay, lah, then you say like that, then never mind. Lah. So can you see that this is more than just about my genitals are broken or my genitals are sensitive, why I cannot have orgasm? It has to do with Can you even receive? Can you stand up for yourself? Can you, do you know your body? Can you speak up? Can you educate your partner? I think if we don't have sex education we don't even know where's the clit, then how can we speak up? If you don't know how to orgasm, if you've never orgasm, if you've never masturbated, then how can you speak for yourself? So I feel the focus on orgasm gap is a much bigger conversation on whether they even know their anatomy, whether they even see the orgasm as important. Just because somebody, some researchers, some sex educators or women or feminists are saying, hey, it's very important, you know. You cannot force people to make something important if they don't feel it is important. So we need to boil it down to the individual level. And people change. Maybe at some point it's not important as they, as the relationship continues, they will start to wonder. How come every time I also don't have orgasm? So I feel that we have to be available where people are at. If it is not an issue for them, individuals, then if they are okay, then we cannot. We shouldn't be actually telling them that, hey, something wrong with you, uh, you cannot have orgasms. You, you get what I'm trying to say?
0: Hmm. So it means for your clients currently, some of the issues that like, they might face is more of how, how they feel that they might not be able to pleasure their partner well enough?
1: Yeah, a lot of them are coming to me to please their partners. They are coming not for themselves. There are people who are coming in for themselves, but I would say most of the time they're actually more concerned about the relational aspects of sex. Meaning if they were not in a relationship, the lack of sex, the lack of orgasm is not a problem for them. But because they are in a relationship and it is a problem for their partner, then they want to learn how to have an orgasm. It is a problem for their partner. They, they want to be better in sex. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, the, the pressure to be better in sex comes from your partner. And uh, it's great that there are people who come in and say, I want to learn this and that. I want to learn how to have orgasms. I want to have uh, different kinds of orgasms. Great. So yeah, so that's why I don't go around beating my chest and say, hey, this is a problem, that is a problem. Like seriously, there are already so many battles to fight. (laughs) I just work with the clients that come in to see me and if they are coming to me and saying, we cannot have sex, we cannot consummate our marriage, I don't care about the orgasm. I will still try to plant a seed and say, it is important in the longer scheme of things, but I definitely do not, turn my agenda into their agenda. I don't impose my agenda onto them just in the name of of uh, being a, a, a sex counsellor or like being a woman who is a feminist who says, there's an orgasm gap, how dare you? You work with people where they're at.
0: From what we have discussed so far, it feels as though when it comes to female sexual awareness, Singaporeans might still be lagging a bit
1: behind uh i am based in singapore i work mainly with singapore uh, singaporeans and of course all kinds of asians and expats and i would say uh the people who actually are the most difficult in expressing their sexuality are not even singaporeans are actually the indians from india yeah so there are people who have zero sex education then there are people who have bizarre, warped, weird out of this world. I don't know where that came from, sex education. <laughs> so sometimes I get some of this weird, very super weird, I don't know where it came from, um, thinking around uh, around sex presented to me as a fact. Uh, so yeah, that's what I mean. Like there's no, the, the, Because of the lack of sex education, people based on hearsay, based on rumor, based on this that friend. And then suddenly, with enough repetition, it is presented to me through them as a fact. So I wouldn't say that Singaporeans are the worst of the lot. So what, you know, so what if they don't know the names of their genitals? I don't make it a problem. I just try to get clarity from what they mean. Just because they don't know the, the, the terms it doesn't mean that they don't know what is the problem. Maybe they don't know the term of the problem, like I have premature ejaculation, maybe they don't know the term, but they are just as capable as anybody else to explain what problem they have. So I don't really say, oh, Singaporeans are like that, that, that." I'm working with all kinds of Asians, Malaysians, Indonesians, Filipinos, people from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from, yeah, all over. So, I'm very fortunate Because Singapore Is such a Hub Isn't it For Asians Together So so I also see Interracial marriages But I would just Say In, in, in general It's true The lack of sex education Causes more difficulties With sex That's it
0: I also Wanted to ask About the Female and male Dynamics So Based on one's Comforts uh, Level Everyone has a different Benchmark Of what is friendly, flirty or harassing behaviours and this is quite a great area because two persons can be in the exact same situation but both can have entirely different perception of what is going on. So I wanted to ask, how can a guy or girl navigate the physical flirting and escalation game which usually relies on non-verbals while protecting themselves from being accused by the other party of sexual harassment?
1: Uh, I think this is something that if you don't, you are not exposed to, you won't be good at it, because a lot of human behavior is actually learned, and we learn through observation and we learn through modeling, and uh, in a lot of the shows that we watch, <laughs> like say Chinese drama serials or Korean or this and that, actually is very exaggerated soap opera shows. So depending what you watch you may not be so attuned to the innuendos of behavior. And if you come from a very sheltered family where you only study and sleep, (laughs) uh, then you, you may miss out on these little very subtle cues that we are somehow magically expected to know. And if somebody has a mental disability like Asperger's or like autism, it may be difficult for them to pick up on these cues they may look physically okay. They may look just like a normal person, but you wouldn't know that some... Uh, in fact, I also didn't know until recently that one of my close friends, she actually has uh, Asperger's. So these people are not very good in picking up cues. So the thing is, I I feel because of lack of sex education, again, I link back to that, and the lack of modeling and the lack of sexual conversations in our society. Um, a lot of us don't know how to behave When we grow up, we don't know how to behave and navigate flirting and dating and initiating and instigating sex. We are just not good at it. So a lot of what we learn is actually try and error, hit and miss and we learn through bad experiences and unfortunately, with these bad experiences, it actually puts people off and some people shut down and they feel that they are useless and they are never going to get it. So I feel that We cannot be responsible for what other people behave towards us, but we can be responsible for ourselves. And the best thing to do is to learn how to speak up. A lot, a lot of people have difficulties speaking up. They cannot say no. They cannot tell this person they are not interested. So they don't say anything and they hope the person will get the hint. And this is very, very unfair actually on the person but they are scared of hurting the person's feelings, so you are actually scared. So you say things like you're scared of hurting the person's feelings, but actually you're scared of speaking up. So a lot of times we make excuses for our own behaviors and I feel that people won't learn until they have to learn. And sometimes the uh, negative experiences, unfortunately, if we have that element of reflection, oh, something bad happened. Actually, what happened? Why did it happen? What can I learn from this? How can I make this not happen again? So if we have the ability to do that, then uh, a lot of these things will kind of start to improve. And I think this is the reason why going to uh, coaches, counselors can be beneficial because they can explain what is very subtle and make it more clear and support couples to navigate. So sometimes I act as an interpreter. I hear one side, I hear the other side and then I translate it in a way that the other person can understand and I can see that their partner cannot understand because I can see from their body language they don't understand and they may have had the same conversation hundreds of times and their partner is exasperated because they have tried to explain but their partner just doesn't get it. So this is where I can pick, pick up on these cues and I do act as some kind of a translator for these people. So I feel that uh, um, it is actually clunky and non-linear. It's actually like a bit all over the place. Uh, there is no right way or wrong way to learn because we are all just trying to make sense of things from where we are at. But then you are able
0: to understand it even though you are a third party. So it shows that you must have a certain level of social and emotional intelligence. We,
1: when we go through training. You you cannot just become a counsellor or become a coach. You have to learn how to uh, pick up the what is being said, what is being felt, and what is unseen, what you sense. <laughs> so the when I was going through training, uh, and I hear this, the three levels of listening, I was like, eh, what is that? I don't understand. I can hear very well. Yes, I hear. And then I can see. Yeah, I can see this person is not understanding. But can I sense what this person is feeling? <laughs> so these three levels of listening is totally out of this world because it is not even what you see. It is not even what you hear. It is actually what you sense. And this this, uh, this, desire to be good in helping people over time, over try and error, over practice, you become better and better at it. But in order to have the interest to be a coach or counselor, you already think that you're good. So it's just like saying somebody who is good in maths decides to be a mathematician. The, the reality is you already are good at it. So you are interested in what you're good at. And because you are interested, you practice and then you become better. And so people don't understand like what I do is more than just having the hate knowledge about sex. It's also the dynamics between couples and also your relationship and your dialogue with yourself. And I would say all counsellors, coaches psychologists, psychiatrists they all have to a certain extent this kind of training and you practice and then you become better. They already have the interest they already have the, they already tend to have the aptitude. So then they practice of course they become very good at it. yeah. Just like sex if you if you want to be good in sex you you may have the interest and then you don't have the interest if you don't have the interest then you're like I'm not interested then your sex is always not good. But maybe you, you are not very good, but you have an interest, you practice, you with experience you get better. And it also doesn't mean uh, necessarily that with experience, you have to have a lot of sex with a lot of people. You can, you can explore many, many infinite possibilities to be sexual with your partner and also uh, be sexual with yourself. If you're comfortable with yourself, you know how, how, what you like and how your body loves pleasure then you can advocate for yourself better as well.
0: There are couples who don't have sex before marriage, but they are still able to meet their sexual needs after marriage. So that is due to coincidental chance. or
1: Sex is learned. The desire to have sex is not learned. desire to have sex is there. We get horny. But the, the execution of sex, how to please your partner how to do this and that, certain certain sexual acts is learned. And how you learn is through communication. So mm-hmm. people who are sexually inexperienced, they can learn from each other. They can learn from books. They can learn from videos. They can come to people like me and ask questions to support them in terms of the lack of experience and fill in the gaps for them in what they don't understand so that their learning curve is not so steep uh, but it, it's not true that people who choose to be virgins until marriage, that they will be compatible. I feel that the emotional connection is there, the love is there, and from there, they use that as a foundation to navigate all the other differences so that they they are also not taking things for granted, hopefully.
0: So it means if there is practice and improvement communication, sexual chemistry and sexual compatibility can be improved?
1: Yeah, can can be. Uh, one of the things that I learned uh, in school is that chemistry is something that is very, very vague. It is not something that can be just manufactured like this. A lot of times who we are attracted to actually comes from uh, what we view as attractive in our parents and perhaps what are some of the uh, childhood wounding that we need to work through. Say if I have a, a father who is very emotionally distant but I actually always saw it as oh this is this is the bearings of somebody who is a real man. <laughs> so I might find myself being drawn to this kind of a people not knowing the gap thinking that this is sexy and masculine but actually uh, this person actually has the difficulties in really being open but I'm just drawn to this because of this programming all along in my head that this is what I'm looking for. So that's why they, they're, they're saying, right, we have a type. So where does this type come from? So this type actually really fuels our sexual uh, attraction. And then because we're attracted to this person, then there's this like whole chemistry around it. And it can be changed also. It can be rewired because our mind is so powerful our mind will start to believe what we tell our mind. So if I keep telling myself tall, dark, handsome is what I want, tall, dark, handsome is the most masculine, then I'll keep going for tall, dark, handsome. Until maybe I have a positive experience with a series of men who are more chubby, then I'll go... Actually, chubby men are the best because chubby men always laugh and they're so happy and they're so funny and they're so generous. I think I like chubby men now. So actually, can you see a lot of times what we are attracted to is fueled by positive experiences. And it's not just one or two, it's probably repeated positive experiences. So, a lot of people don't believe me, but I actually have, um, I actually like chubby men.
0: (laughs) And negative experiences can also change the type of guy that we like?
1: Yes. So, if you had a very bad experience with a certain type, then you go, ah, I don't go for Chinese anymore. Or I don't go for people with long face. They look like horses (laughs) because maybe your ex was like that. You see? So uh, this look reminds you of your ex and then it's like never again. Anything, you know, the human mind is so amazing. It was like, oh, I have no luck with Pisces. You know, I have no luck with people with tattoos. We come up with the most bizarre theories and then it becomes a fact. So yeah, I'm very wary of people who present things as a fact okay, this is your subjective experience and now you are just sweeping it across the whole planet, you know. So I'm very wary of, of uh, certain things that are presented as facts uh, in books, you know, like sex books. Somebody has, uh, has sex with a lot of women and it's like, okay, now I'm the guru and now I'm going to tell all men this is the way. So I'm very wary of people who use subjective experiences as factual
0: I agree and I also like the point which which you mentioned about it's important to look at, at people as individuals instead of stereotyping them as a community because we are we are all individuals and, and we are all different. I wanted to, to also ask, in your line of work, you are able to talk about sexuality openly, but what about your personal view on sex? Do you view it as a, a sacred act or...
1: Uh, there are many aspects of sex that I really have come to appreciate. Uh, sex is, uh, involves the body, involves the heart, involves the mind, involves something more than what we can see. Uh, so there's this sense of sex being special and sacred, like you have access to something that is unknown, And uh, even my clients who are non-religious, I think they do understand like there's something special about sex. Yet at the same time, I also don't see like there's a need to make sex so serious. It can be fun. It can be serious. It can be loving. It can be vigorous. It can be aggressive. There are so many different ways to do something in so many different creative, fun ways that I don't really like box it. But personally, I see it as multifaceted. So I don't see there's a right way or wrong way. I see that every way is okay as long as it's consenting, as long as it makes them happy. And my role is to just support them. My role is not to impose my belief or sex. If my client feels that sex is only physical and they just want me to support them on the physical aspects, how to last longer or whatever, then I just support them on that. I'm not going to go and tell them, oh, you know, it should be like this. I don't.
0: And I read through your blog, you mentioned before that you might have faced violence as a result of talking about this topic openly.
1: Yeah, I've, I, uh, when I first started my practice, of course, people didn't know what I do for a living. So they think uh, anything related to sex, I guess just like, you know, the, the I mean, there's so many ironies, right, in Asia, isn't it? Sex is not talked about, but actually sex is, very much in people's faces. I have clients from US and Europe. They don't get proposition the way they get proposition in Singapore. <laughs> they don't come across sex being offered on the streets or massage parlors offering hand jobs or happy endings. So there's this dichotomy happening because of this repression that actually is coming out in the most weirdest way. <laughs> like upskirt videos and all these things. It is actually because what is in the light has now gone into the shadow and it has gone into the shadow because there's nothing in the light. <laughs> so actually, it's just all coming out like moody and like disgusting because it is so repressed actually. But anyway, um, so yes, I, I do get sexual harassment and in fact, I have colleagues who uh, tell me that they don't get this level of ignorance and Uh, Disrespect Elsewhere in the world So I would say Amongst all the different sex educators Around the world I compare with my colleagues And I have run workshops in Australia It definitely is a very different uh, feeling They are still very uncomfortable about sex It doesn't have to be uh, And it is changing But it's still very uncomfortable For a lot of people
0: Because what you do is also there. Is, there is your private life, and then there's there is your public image. When you date, date like guys, or when you meet like different people, is there a fear that they might not be able to separate your work with you as an individual?
1: Yeah. So the thing is, as a as a counselor, we we are taught to uh, be very clear in not having dual relationships, meaning. A friend cannot be a client and a client cannot be a karma friend. Uh, this is so we don't stumble them. Uh, like say, for instance, when they see me as a, for sessions, they are there for me to take on the persona and the characteristics of a, a counselor, which is the whole space for them, which is to put aside my life and actually focus on their lives. So they will see me as a loving, wonderful, amazing person. But in my personal life, I may not be so wonderful, amazing. (laughs) I may be very short-tempered. But if they cross into personal life and they expect me to carry that same loving nature as their friend now, they may be very disappointed. And they they may realize that I may not have that emotional capacity to carry the same kind of support that I have for my clients into my personal life. So what I'm trying to say is that we are actually trained to separate the two. This is why my friends were very shocked that I decided to be a counsellor and not only that, a sex counsellor. And I had many friends who said, huh, you also can be counsellor? You know, because they they see the worst side of me and they don't realise the training that we have to go through to separate what is me and what what is professional. That I'm holding space for someone now. I do need to put my life on pause. And to have the extent of lovingness. So anyway, when it comes to my personal relationships, uh, I also have to separate because of course, friends, family, your beloved will be very curious. Oh, tell me your funny client story today. The thing is, first of all, we have to protect our client's confidentiality. Then the next thing is, do I really want to be talking about work when I'm not working? And when people try to continue to drag me into conversations that I don't want to go into, I will just tell them, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I I have friends who keep asking me question after question about sex because they can't be bothered to go and find out the answers for themselves because I'm in front of them. But I am not working now. I don't want to be talking about sex when I am here having a dinner or I'm here having a social gathering. So the headspace is very different. Uh, they don't have training. So I cannot blame them for not understanding. Uh, what I can do is take responsibility for myself and just say, I'm sorry, but I don't want to talk about this right now. I'm not in the frame of mind. Uh, we can have a conversation at a separate time. This is my card. You can, you can book me for a session. So these are different things that I can do. So when it comes to my own... <laughs> personal uh, dating life uh, if they continue and persistently not show respect for my boundaries then this person cannot be a partner I cannot date a person who doesn't respect my boundaries and a person who doesn't understand the sensitive confidential nature of my work and a person who persists on just objectifying me and uh, not seeing that I have uh, there are times when I have my work hat and there are times when I just want to be a girl there are times when I just want to be silly and stupid.
0: Yeah. And then you were talking about the the importance of setting boundaries and voicing out. For some individuals, they might find it hard to vocalise or to assert their boundaries. So, um, how do you think we can change that?
1: Yeah, uh, so just now I mentioned that I also had to learn this. I had to learn this. I had to learn this. It wasn't easy. When I first uh, started being sexual, I couldn't speak up in the bedroom. I really could not speak at all. It was stuck in my throat. I just couldn't speak. I couldn't say stop. I couldn't say slow down. I couldn't say anything. I was so frozen. But over time, with practice, it started to get better and better. So I realized that if I cannot speak up for myself outside of the bedroom, I would definitely find much harder to speak up in the bedroom. So I, I had to talk to myself and I had to force myself to do things that were uncomfortable. So something as simple as turning the food back to the kitchen because it's just totally unacceptable the way the food is cooked, whatever is burned or whatever. It's so difficult. So learning how to not get emotional and hysterical and be screaming at the waiter, not be aggressive and not be passive aggressive, like glaring at the waiter, like I hate you because you brought me burnt food. Or just assert yourself. You see, this is a job for them. So they also deserve respect. So how can I speak my truth without getting as upset? So I use the example of sending food back because that is a very, very simple day-to-day thing that we can do to assert ourselves. So at first, I couldn't do it. I had to fight myself. I had to push away the, ah, don't do it, la, don't do it, lah. they will spit in your food. Uh, so I had to do even the smallest things And then over time, it became easier and easier. And as a counsellor for 11 years, of course, you know, I have had to say no many times. I have to say like, I'm not going to have sex with you. This is not what I do. Uh, You are being disrespectful. Uh, This is the third time I'm repeating myself. Uh, Asking me more times is not going to make me change my mind. Uh, I'm sorry, but because you persistently disrespect me, uh, I'm sorry, but you are not going to be a client. So I have had to do this several times. And when, pe- when I assert myself and I just speak my truth, people assume that I'm angry because email has no tone. And I have to also be comfortable with being the punching bag, which is, you know, they are not at a good frame of mind when they approach me. So any slightest thing is going to tilt them over so they can turn around and abuse me, which I have been the recipient of. So I have to come back to my center. I have to I have to examine did what I say was it really inappropriate? How could I communicate better? So you just learn.
0: Oh, then adding on to that, I also think that a lot of times the communication breakdown is because the other party is unhappy about something but they assume that the other party should know, but but the other party is not a mind-reader, so they like like show passive-aggressive emotions instead of expressing out verbally.
1: Yeah, so I was also guilty of that when I had my first relationship. I used to be thinking like if we are synchronized, I shouldn't have to say it. Um, I think once the bubble bursts and you realize that they really, really cannot read your mind, you start to have more realistic expectations. And then when you really rough it out and you really realize that, hey, the world doesn't revolve around you, I think that is the really coming of age. And uh, I think a lot of us go through that phase because, again, I, I blame the media for it, what we are exposed to. A lot of women expect to be treated like princesses. And a lot of men have that burden of having to be all macho and they are used to being very roughly treated so whatever it is i've learned that i really really need to have a lot of compassion for men as well because i'm a woman i i see a lot of things through the eyes of women but i really had to really really understand through the many sessions that i had with clients the difficulties that men have also in in articulating and sometimes we make jokes, whatever, uh, st- uh, stereotyping or generalization. But I think a lot of these generalizations still is quite true. Although I still like to look at people as individuals, but still sometimes the generalizations support me in like quickly understanding my clients, where they, what end of the spectrum they might be. Uh, so yeah, more communication really. I, I, I feel this coming of age, this maturing, actually happens at different ages for different people. So this coming of age doesn't mean, oh, 16, puberty, had my period. I'm an adult now. Yeah, that's the physiological. But what about the mental and emotional coming of age? Uh, Some people actually never grow up. (laughs) They are still behaving like kids at 50 and 60. Uh, As in being very spoiled and willful and controlling and manipulative and abusive. Some people just never grow up. So we cannot control other people. What we can do is we can reflect on ourselves. We can stand up for ourselves. We can assert ourselves. And unfortunately, we are not taught this and we are not modeled this. And so when I speak up my, for myself and when I assert my boundaries, clients are not used to it, especially men. They are not going to get what they want, which is have sex with me. And uh, then they, they turn abusive. Oh, you're just a slut or you're just, you're just a cunt. You know, or uh, like, yeah, then very quickly go into name-calling and very quickly go into, you say you're a sexologist, but you're not open about sex at all. So the <laughs> the way I think about sex is very open, but it doesn't mean that go around having sex with everybody. I
0: understand. And then uh, just now you were talking about men, they might also have their issues. So in Singapore, everyone always talks about uh women are being discriminated, blah, 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 But no one speaks up for like, men. So uh, in, in your line of, of a work, what are the struggles faced face by men?
1: Okay, uh, 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 like I mentioned, a lot of them, they, they have difficulties with articulating their emotions to be vulnerable, to cry, or to even laugh. <laughs> laugh in any way. Uh, and actually speaking about feelings. I've had many, many clients, I ask them, what are you feeling? And then they tell me what they're thinking. And I say, no, 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 what are you feeling? And then they tell me what they think they should be feeling. And I say, no, 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 what are you feeling? So I actually sometimes have to ask them a few times and it is because it is so hard for them to access what they're feeling because they, they don't, they don't operate like that. And, and because they don't, they don't think and feel like their partner uh, who often is the opposite sex? So then there's a lot of miscommunication because they are also verb uh, visibly not as expressive. are like, oh, you, you you know expression means you didn't you didn't care. You know expression means you didn't hear me. You know expression means you don't love me anymore. Uh, you know expression means you don't feel pain. So then abuse more. You see? Okay.
0: S individuals we might face issues or struggles in life at times so how can we be more responsible and be more empowered to instead of blaming the environment to see how we can improve ourselves and what helpful actions we can take what advice do you have Uh,
1: so empowered means taking back the power that has always been yours So our sexuality is a precious part of us. But unless we really appreciate our sexuality, we won't value and cherish it. So the fact is we don't know that we have this power and we are learning about ourselves because a lot of times we are told to shut up and just look pretty or how we feel doesn't matter. I think everybody to some extent do have some kind of childhood wounding. So becoming empowered means you stop blaming other people. You take responsibility for yourself because you come of age and you're expected to take care of yourself. And part of coming of age and taking care of yourself is to, is to look at what you can control and what you cannot control. So when you really are able to do that, then uh, you, you take back your power. I think you stop actually pointing at governments and the environment because you start to realize actually governments are also made up of people who are also not perfect and uh, so so honestly if I if I really look at the state of of sex uh, education in Singapore if I really look at all the problems people have if I really dwell on eat too much I will go crazy I will probably go insane I will probably break down but I just, I just focus on, okay, this person, I help this person. And then after the session, I really, really try not to bring it back into my personal life. I try not to think about it. So there have been many, many times, I don't know when it started. I will have, uh, in the past, I will have like five clients a day, seven clients a day. I'll write down my client notes. At the end of the day, after seven clients, I really, really, really cannot remember how the first client looks like. I really cannot remember what the first client said, but luckily I have my notes, right? So what happened is I've learned to let go very quickly. I've learned how to compartmentalize very quickly. because I have to, because otherwise I'll go insane. I'll go insane with sadness, with grief, with frustration, with anger. So part of it is I don't blame anybody. I just work with this person where they're at, the person, the individual, I do what I can. After they leave the session, They take back their lives. I cannot be responsible for them. I support them. This is a safe container for us to explore skills and knowledge and resources and techniques and whatever it is that they need from me. And they go on to their lives. And what I'm actually sharing with you about counselling is actually nothing different about other counsellors and psychologists and psychiatrists. This is the training that we have. But I think because a lot of people don't know what is counselling and coaching, They don't feel safe. They feel scared. They think that we are just there to give them advice. They think that we just sit there and listen to what they have to say and don't teach them anything practical. So I think because of this lack of knowing what we are doing, a lot of people are very, very wary to seek support. They think it's just a waste of money. They think we are just scammers. They don't realize the amount of training and knowledge and supervision uh, that we need.
0: Okay, I got last two questions. The first one is because your role is also like a counselor. So how do you deal with the emotional burnout after the end of your work? Because they will like transfer their emotions to you, and then you're like taking in all these issues, and and then Mango is like, oh my god.
1: Yeah. So I know of uh I know of uh people who who stop being helping professionals because they couldn't deal with this uh, transference. They burn out. So that was a time I burned out. I really did. I, I, I uh, At the seventh year mark of my work, I burnt out. Seven years each. Yeah, seven years <laughs> each. Like, over time, I think you can't help. You keep seeing so many people, so many clients, so many similar cases. And then you start to go into, or at least I started to go into, yeah, another one, another one, another one. So, you know, as much as I talk about people being individuals and the need to look at them as individuals, when you get burned out, you just you just go through the motions, and it's it's a dangerous place to be at, uh, because everybody is precious. Uh, the way to uh, prevent burnout for me is I have to take extreme care of myself I have to do the things that I need to do so I know that I need to move my body every day if I don't move my body I will start to feel lethargic lazy and moving my body helps to move all this anything that doesn't need to be in my body out of my body Uh, next thing is I really need to not just be at okay I need to do things that are fun so you, don't, you can do things that are fun and funny that makes you feel joy and pleasure without needing to spend a lot of money. And I don't mean masturbate. So things that gives me a lot of joy can be learning. I love learning. That's why I have four degrees. <laughs> I love learning. So the things that I learn, I have to be selective. Am I learning for work or am I learning for fun? So for instance, like every day I spend a few minutes learning Spanish. And my dad was like, why are you learning? You're never going to use it. Yeah, but I just want to do something that is not work. I just want to do something that fulfills my desire to learn and to use my brain to expand my capacity to be creative and to push myself out of my comfort zone to admit to myself, I am a beginner. So there are many things we can do to infuse joy and pleasure into our lives without needing to spend a lot of money.
0: And then, you were, and then you also mentioned a few times about uh, sex can be a fun topic and not a, a serious topic. So I'd like to end off with a fun question about sex. So as, as like girls, uh, what are some baby steps or tips that you can give us to feel comfortable receiving instead of just giving?
1: Yeah, that day I was uh, sharing with a client and uh, this, I don't know whether it makes sense. If you are not a good receiver, and you're not in a relationship, you can go on a date with yourself, and you can give to yourself. So one hand give and one hand receive. So I, in in a in a in a very, uh, not so nice way of saying it, it's a bit like schizo, like one hand this, one hand this. So if I'm in a relationship with myself, so I block out the time. I give myself a budget, I go on a date with myself and I force myself, okay, uh, Martha, you just spent $10 on this tea. Uh, don't be thinking of work now. Really, really sit there, enjoy your people watching and enjoy your tea. <laughs> Can you receive or not? So when I started to practice receiving by myself, then I became better at receiving. So it is, it is not the big things that we should be doing to make life-changing changes because it becomes too big and then it becomes overwhelming and scary. It's actually the small things, just like the small ways I learned to assert myself. I pat my back and then the next time I was able to do something bigger. So I first forced myself to drink tea in a cafe and do people watching uh, once a month because I didn't have a lot of money. So I budget, I go on a special date with myself and, uh, instead of like one hour date, I do the whole day. Okay, the whole day, once a month, I will go and do my uh, face, facial, I go and do my nails, I will go and do my hair uh, and then after that, I'll reward myself with a cup of tea. Wow, I really like the Thai Thai experience. It doesn't have to be very expensive to take yourself on the date. Do I want to wait until I ma- marry a rich man and be a Thai Thai, which may never happen, which probably doesn't happen, uh, or do I want to give myself the Thai Thai experience and, and really pamper myself and actually say, I, I deserve, I deserve this. So that is one of the reasons why a lot of uh, women that I know of uh, who have kids, uh, they are tired, exasperated, burnt out, jaded, no sex drive because they they, they don't have the time or ability to give to themselves and they're waiting for their partner to do it. Don't wait already, give to yourself.
0: Yeah, I also agree that it's important to love ourselves and pamper ourselves.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then there are people who pamper themselves so much that it's out of control. (laughs) Moderation. Balance. Okay, then do you have any
0: final words before we end off the interview?
1: Yeah, I mean, people think of sex as just physical act. And of course, a lot of women that I know of think of sex as must be emotional. Uh, uh, it is way, way more than that. So the more you understand about it, the more you will appreciate it. The more you can do it in whatever way, <laughs> uh, the more creative, playful, fun you can be. It is a choice. Uh, And then the fear of being judged is always there Like, oh, will this person think that I'm like that Because I'm, you know But the more educated you are The more relaxed you can be So I really encourage people to Not blame government Not blame sex sex education Not blame their parents Not blame their religion Not blame being Asian Just decide for yourself What kind of sex life you want to have And just work towards Becoming more and more comfortable with your sexuality is a journey. I
0: agree, sex falls under a whole different spectrum and it's unique to each and every individual. So, thank you for sharing, Dr. Mata. We hope you have a fruitful week ahead. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thank you. Off-off bit-bit perspectives.